0: William O'Neill wrote his own tragedy and Stanfield breathes life into it here. A confused, twisting spirit forever trapped in a hell of its own making. That's Stephanie Zekarik of Time Magazine talking about Judas and the Black Messiah, our feature review this time here on Cinephile. In addition to that, I received a screener for and watched, by the way, Judas and the Black Messiah is available on HBO Max. Falling, I got the screener sent to me a new film from Vigo Mortensen. Not only does he star in it, he directs it, directorial debut, he wrote it he partly produced it, and he did the score for it. I don't know how many movies I've ever seen a guy's done those five things. I mean, I've heard of, like Spike Lee, obviously, actor, producer, writer, director, but doing the score as well. It's unbelievable. His new film is called Falling. It's about a man dealing with his father who is suffering from dementia. Laura Linney, also cameo role. Lance Henriksen plays the father. In addition to that, I just you know locked myself in the bathroom and read Ethan Hawke's new book, one of my favorites, me and Claire Atkins. Love him. A Bright Ray of Darkness, 237 pages. His first book in 20 years since Ash Wednesday. I read all 237 pages in four days. It's brilliant. Really funny. Really smart. Also, we've got some uh, social media news. We have a lot of social media news. Gina Carano, fired. That story's crazy. Um, <laughs> Stanley Kubrick, film being rediscovered, and Sam Rockwell's going to be in it. Bong Joon-ho, Parasite follow-ups. John Apatow's new project. Joe Pesci's mansion. And this is a real doozy from Joe A Mount Rushmore of polyglot slash multilingual actors This is in honor of Viggo Mortensen Who incredibly speaks English, Danish, Spanish, French, conversation, Catalan, Swedish, and Norwegian So we're going to look at the best actors who speak more than one language I love this idea First and foremost, I'm glad my man Joe is okay He had a terrible cold this weekend, was terrified it was COVID Joe, how are you feeling today here as we record this on Tuesday?
1: I am feeling much better. Thank you for asking. I locked myself in my room. I slept all weekend. I feel much better now. I got tested a million times and I was assured by the doctor that it wasn't anything serious other than the common cold. So I am feeling much, much better. Thank you for asking, Adnan. Of course,
0: man. A common cold, which had an uncommon effect. So it definitely knocked you for a loop, but thank God. As we were saying off air, I mean, we're 11 months now into this COVID nightmare. I couldn't imagine getting it now. It would just be so incredibly frustrating after being so safe for so long. So thank God you're okay. Uh, As always, please go to Apple Podcasts where you can subscribe, rate, and review. Alex VC, great podcast. I've been a loyal listener since day one. Adnan's knowledge of film is mind blowing. Some podcasts have a sweet spot, time limit. This one doesn't have one. I could listen to talk movies all day. You're the best, Alex VC. Podcast has inspired me to want to watch more movies, expand my film horizons. Would love a weekly what to watch segment with suggestions for non-current movies, maybe with an analysis the following week after you've had a chance to watch. That's kind of like the rewatchables, Alex, which, by the way, tremendous episode. They reviewed one of my favorite films of all time. That would be Taxi Driver for the 45th anniversary. It was Bill Simmons, uh, Sean Fantasy, and Bill Hader coming off the top rope. That's right. We love Barry, and Hader is a huge fan of of taxi drivers, so he was along for the ride. Had some great insights. I'll tell those a little later on. Um, but that's a good idea, Alex. Maybe I'll talk to Joe. Maybe we'll do that once in a while. We'll do some old movies and uh, a bit of rewatchable steam. Meh, meh. Never heard of Minari, but loved the review. My family vacation in the Ozarks in the summer. Yeah, the Lake people are different. LOL. Uh, the bad guy, 127, also offering T. Brad gave us five and a half Maple Leafs. Wow, I'm paraphrasing here, but this is a great pod for fans of cinema. A little bit of old films, a little bit of the new stuff, all of the scorsese. That's right. Talking about sound design, talking about cinematography, keeping it real. Joe balances out the conversation too. I love that. Joe definitely brings a lot, especially the sound design and cinematography. And healthy traps. How about that for a handle? A few years in the podcast, you've mastered the art of the movie review, Joy for Cinema Infectious. Every week I want to buy, watching, reserving. Every single thing a guest comes on to promote. Well, listen, no guests this week, but we've got great guests coming up. We are hoping to have Louis Anderson. That's right. One of the actors in Coming to America 2, Life with Louis*, Baskets, and went to the same high school as Joe. We're hoping to have Louis Anderson next week. The week after that, Jermaine Fowler, who is a huge talent. He plays Eddie Murphy's kid in the sequel to Coming to America. So we got a real Coming to America flavor coming up the next couple of weeks here on Cinefile. So look forward to that. Let's kick it off here with Judas and the Black Messiah. I don't know much about the Black Panthers. Going in, I would probably know most of the average person knows. Black militant group, uh, scary for much of middle America, hates the police, F the police, you know, take out the pigs, all that kind of stuff, but maybe a very important political group and and really tapping into, at the time, a real growing sense of anger and frustration and resentment that black people had felt in America for years. So when Judas and the Black Messiah pops up, I say, hey, I can't wait to see this because you've got... Rave reviews for the actors. You have an eye-popping 97% critic review on Rotten Tomatoes. And you've got a story which I'd like to learn more about. Here's the synopsis. FBI informant William O'Neill infiltrates the Illinois Black Panther Party and is tasked with keeping tabs on their charismatic leader, Chairman Fred Hampton. A career thief, O'Neill revels in the danger of manipulating both his comrades and his handler, Special Agent Roy Mitchell. Hampton's political prowess grows just as he's falling in love with fellow revolutionary Deborah Johnson. Meanwhile, a battle wages for O'Neal's soul. Will he align with the forces of good or subdue Hampton and the Panthers by any means as FBI director J. Edgar Hoover commands? It's directed by Shaka King, only his second feature one of the films that was featured at Sundance. By the way, we have a Sundance recap coming up, virtual Sundance this year, of course. We're not all frozen in Park City, Utah. Shaka King and the movie were actually at Sundance as well, just to give the film some more oomph. Daniel Kaluuya is the headliner not necessarily in terms of plot time, but I think he's the headliner in terms of he's the guy that you come out and say, hey, dude, this guy's unbelievable. Like, forget about screen length. He owns the screen. It's a commanding performance. It could win an Academy Award. He just got nominated for Best Supporting Actor for the Golden Globes. The Globes are coming up on February 28th, hosted by Tina Fey and uh, I believe Amy Poehler as well, of course. And Kaluuya also got nominated for a SAG Award, Best Supporting Actor. He might be the frontrunner to win this award, and it's easy to see why when you watch Judas and the Black Messiah. It's a charismatic performance. It's volcanic at times. It's quiet and restrained, especially in the moments with his wife, Dominique Fishback. It's got all the rabble-rouse you'd expect. I mean, it's a rule if you're an actor. You can't wait to do a role like this. Are you kidding? Black Panther leader? You're going to have lots of big speeches. As I said, volcanic outbursts, and at the same time, have a real sense of heart and empathy about you. Because if you know the real story, it ain't going to end well for Fred. Kaluuya, masterful. And think about this. If he gets nominated, you know, he was a surprise nominee for Get Out. At a very young age, he could be nominated twice. In terms of for a black actor, two best actor nominations, I think he'd be the youngest ever. I mean, there's no way, uh, I mean, not no way, but I don't think Sidney Poitier or Denzel did this. So uh, good news for Kaluuya if he gets a couple of nominations here. What's also known is the Keith Stanfield. Now, he plays the main character. Now, I've been on record as hating on Sorry to Bother You. Uh, My Sundance experience a few years ago with Ben Lyons. He and I both thought the movie was atrocious. At one point, he could tell how much I was hating it. I could tell how much he was hating it. And he leaned to me and just kind of laughed and says, welcome to Sundance. I think it was a scene where Army Hammer talks about horse cocks. And I go, okay, I think I've had enough of this movie. And then, of course, the reviews came out. And I said, okay, this is why you can never believe the critics totally. They gave it like 94%. I go, I don't care. I don't care what anyone says. That movie stinks. having said that, I'm not going to deny Lakeith Stanfield is talented, especially when I watched Judas and the Black Messiah. He is excellent in the film as Bill O'Neill. And it's interesting because I just reviewed Donnie Brasco, which is about an FBI agent going undercover, infiltrating the mafia. In this case, this is a guy infiltrating uh, the Black Panthers. So I I enjoyed seeing that similarity. What's it like to uh, infiltrate something that you believe to be nefarious and may or may not be. And the further you get into it, the deeper you go, just like the movie Deep Cover. Remember that movie, Jeff Goldblum Lawrence Fishburne. The deeper you go, uh, you start to sympathize with the enemy. A little bit of Stockholm Syndrome, so to speak. So Stanfield, I think, is really good at showing the angst of his character, the duality of his nature, and just how stricken he is with grief as his conscience starts to eat at him. What should he do? Should he turn in Fred? Or is he actually fighting for the right thing? Jesse Plemons, small role but pivotal role. I I love him because I just think he reminds me of Philip Seymour Hoffman, who I wish was alive still and still making great movies. But Plemons is a good actor in his own right, good in The Irishman, good in Fargo. Here he plays Roy Mitchell, the FBI agent. The way he just has Lakeith Stanfield by the gonads. I mean, every time Stanfield's trying to get out, you can just see Plame just twist the knife. Like, hey, buddy, I could just make a phone call to the Panthers. Let them know who you really are. Let them know that you're an FBI agent. Good luck. You're not know, going to see the light of day. So I think the movie is really held together by those three performances. Fishback is also good as the female ingenue. Martin Sheen's small role. I was stunned. I go, is that him? Yes. It's Martin Sheen playing J. Edgar Hoover. Ultimately, it's a story I didn't know much about, but I want to know more about. Title, by the way, is great. Going in, I was like, I don't really understand this title. But now that I've seen the movie, I go, what a great title. Judas and the Black Messiah. Um, Ending is surprising as well. I thought it was smart. It was tightly constructed. It has excellent performances. I know for some, maybe it'll take a little while to get into because it is a drama and it's not exactly hard hitting out of the gate. But the more I was into it, the more I was enveloped in it. I'm giving
1: Judas and the Black Messiah three and a half maple leaves. Joe? And then I could not agree with you more. I watched this movie, and I was just blown away by Daniel Kaluuya's performance uh, and Lakeith Stanfield. I, I I agree with you. I think he could be the frontrunner for Best Supporting Actor at the Oscars this year, but I'm noticing a theme, and let me know what you think, because I feel as though Leslie Odom Jr. could get nominated for One Night in Miami for Best Supporting Actor and Sasha Baron for The Trial of the Chicago 7. So that's three movies where... That, that focus on the late 60s and racial racial tensions at that time, I thought it was a fantastic performance, but I didn't realize until the end how young Fred Hampton was. Did you know he was only 21 when he was killed? That's a great point, Joe. I didn't know that either. And watching Kaluuya... Who looks a little
0: different. I mean, I don't think he's uh, fat, but I think he's put a little bit of weight for the role. And he just looks older. And he looks a little more like, not heavy set. Again, right? I mean, he's a skinny guy in real life. He's fit. But I mean, he just looked maybe 15, 20 pounds heavier. Face a little more sunken in. That's why I was kind of shocked. Uh, but I'm with you. I thought he was like, I don't know, 28, 29, maybe 30. Maybe face always had a couple years. 21. I'm with you. I was shocked this guy was gunned down uh, so early in his life.
1: Yeah, I thought it was fantastic. I would totally recommend this movie. And Martin Sheen as Jay Garruder. You're right. I did not recognize him with the you know face makeup on until maybe halfway through the movie.
0: Yeah, I agree. Martin Sheen could always see him in acting. Uh, I love Martin Sheen. Just makes me want to go back and see some Martin Sheen movies, like Apocalypse Now or. Good early friend of Al Pacino. People don't know that Pacino and him never actually—don't think they were in a movie together—but early on in their career, they were doing some plays together. They remained good friends. Every time I see Marty Sheen, I think of that connection with Al. A.O. Scott, the New York Times: O'Neill's duplicity and Stanfield's twitchy, vulnerable, quick-witted performance is the engine that drives the plot. That's the same A.O. Scott, by the way, who named Borat. As the best picture of 2020. That's why I like A.O. Scott in the New York Times. May Abdulbaki of Screen Rant Judas and the Black Messiah can be incredibly gripping at times with the narrative downplays both Hampton and O'Neill's stories to its detriment. All right, so May is not as all in on this one. The next movie is called Falling Vigo Mortensen. He's in, a guy named John, lives with his partner Eric and their daughter, Monica, in California, far from the traditional rural life he left behind years ago, while his conservative father, Willis, played by Lance Henriksen, lives alone on the isolated farm where John grew up. In the early stages of dementia, Willis is brought to John's California home to help him relocate. Unfortunately, their best intentions ultimately run up against Willis's adamant refusal to change his way of life in the slightest. Yep, he's dealing with dementia, and Vigo Mortensen said this was a labor of love. I don't know if it was his father or his mother. Maybe even his uncle. I can't totally remember. I've seen him on the talk shows, Colbert and Kimmel and such, talking about the fact that he had to deal with a loved one dealing with dementia. He said so often he thinks the movies get it wrong. If you have dementia, you think everything's all right. So he said, I wanted to make a movie showing that at least from that character's perspective, everything's okay. He doesn't know he's losing his mind. And he said, too often, I think movies don't get it right. So this is why he was compelled to make this movie. As I said, wrote, directed, starred, did the score. I think it starts out really well. Uh, I've talked to Vigo Mortensen before here on Cinephile. He was one of the first great gets we had on Cinephile. Go back and look it up. I want to say 2016, 2017. Captain Fantastic, he was promoting, for which he got nominated for Best Actor. Great guy. Before we got rolling, my cousin had texted me. He goes, hey, just so you know, he's from Watertown. So I grew up in Kingston, Ontario. Watertown is right across the board. It's an hour away Whenever you wanted to go to America, it was literally one-hour drive. You go cross-border shopping. So before Vigo got on, I, I literally dropped a Salmon Run Mall on him, and he was thrilled. He was like, oh my God, you're from Watertown. I'm like, no, actually I'm from Kingston, but and he knew right away. He's like, oh, Thousand Islands. We start relating all the same things. So it's just interesting to me. You, you look at Vigo Moritz and you think Aragorn, as we know, he speaks a lot of different languages, but he's all American dude. He's from upstate New York, and that's why watching the movie, I thought it was interesting seeing the characters set. You know, as soon as I saw Utica, I said, okay, yeah, he's setting it uh, with a very familiar tone. New York State, where he knows cold and wintry. Early on, I think he's got a really strong sense of style. Narratively, it's a challenge, but which one that I embraced starts out with seeing Vigo as a boy, dad in his 30s. Then you flip to Vigo as a man, his dad's in his 80s. And then it will go to another period of time just before he really was diagnosed with dementia and was battling cancer. So you kind of have to go back and forth. It's not like a jigsaw pause. I'm not making this sound like it's memento. But, you know, you'll watch 10 minutes of... Uh, the man in his 40s and then in his 80s, and it kind of goes back and forth. But but I enjoyed the cross-cutting, because again, it was to Vigo's point. This guy is living his life, but he's remembering what life was like before he was sick, or these are the memories that pop into his mind. And at times, it can feel disjointed, but that's like the life of living with dementia. The problem of the movie is this. As well-acted as it is, and Hendrickson is marvelous as Willis, because he's angry and he's a bigot. And I mean, Vigo Mortensen's character is gay. The amount of times that he just makes homophobic references, like, listen... A couple of times I almost give him credit for this uh, you know, a creative use of uh, profanity and bigotry, but at times it's just it's unrelenting. Like early on, he's talking to his son. And Vigo, by the way, his character is such a sweet, sensitive guy. He's very painstaking, very caring for his father. But his dad's telling him, he's like, you know, when you were in the air force, did they know that you were a fairy? And Vigo's like, No, dad, I don't think, you know, I myself knew that about myself then. And he's like, oh, yeah. he goes, I, I just don't understand. Like, you, you fantasize about buttholes. And Vigo's just sitting there like, dude, I, I'm literally trying to take care of this guy. And you could tell this dad says this to him all the time. He just absolutely hammers him for being gay. And eventually he says, you know, what, what was he like? He goes, you, "You, I'm fantasizing about women. You're fantasizing about, about gross things like penises and buttholes. He goes, rather than, you know, wondering if the mailman slept with your wife, you're thinking about blowing the mailman. And, like, you hear this over and over. And like I said... Early on, you can kind of roll your eyes, maybe even chuckle, like, hey, man, we all got you know that one crazy uncle in the family. There's always someone saying some nonsense. But by the end, I just found the character unrelenting and therefore unforgiving and therefore, as a movie experience, unbearable. I mean, he's a tiresome character. He has literally no redeeming qualities. He's a terrible father. He was an awful husband. He's been married twice. He just spews bile. He's a bigot towards gays, other races. I mean, he's just, he's a total jerk. And... Again, I give the movie credit for being unsentimental because clearly there are people like this. And just because you're sick doesn't mean that we should be nice to you. But this guy never seemed like he was a nice guy. And in essence, as he got older and got more sick, he just became worse as a person. And so that's why I think the first 30 minutes are promising. You get to the hour scene, there's a long dinner scene Excuse me, lunch scene outside. Laura Linney shows up. We love Laura Linney. I don't like Ozark, but I love Laura Linney. And she shows up. She's Vigo's sister. She only has one scene in the movie. We'd like to see her more in the movie. She's great. I can imagine Vigo just called her. Hey, listen, can you shoot for four days? (laughs) I just need you for four days for my movie. Okay, sure, what the hell? Here's a hundred bucks. I'll fly a first class. But she's good in the movie. She shows how the sister is alienated by the father as well. Wherever he goes, he lays wreckage in his wake. But like I said, ultimately, that character is just too hard to take. And that's why as a movie experience... I didn't find it particularly enjoyable. I think it's honest, and I think certainly if you're dealing with a loved one with dementia, you can see parallels in it, but I can't in good conscience recommend this movie. As fond as I am of Viggo Mortensen, and as much as I recognize this is a real passion project from him. Two Maple Leafs.
1: Joe? And in how much of this film would you say Viggo Mortensen— throws his own life and his own experience and his own upbringing into it. I heard, I heard one comparison where this critic was comparing the film to kind of what Shia, Shia Buff did for Honey Boy yeah. and his experiences growing up. And would you say that he was tr- trying to do the same thing to a degree with this film? Absolutely.
0: I think it's definitely one from the heart. Like I said, knowing that he's from upstate New York and knowing that he's been talking in interviews about the fact he's had dealt with a love and with dementia, I think he's clearly trying to uh, showcase the side of himself which people don't see. Like I said, if you think of Viggo Mortensen, uh, there's a faction of you who think of Lord of the Rings. There's a faction of you who think of the movies that I love, David Cronenberg. Like when he worked with the great Canadian director, History of Violence, Eastern Promises, got nominated for Best Actor for Eastern Promises. I mentioned Captain Fantastic, got nominated for Best Actor. So, like, he's definitely a neglected career. Think about Carlito's way. He's great in Carlito's way. Remember, he's stuck in the wheelchair. He's uh, trying to turn on Pacino. I mean, there's great stuff all over the place. But um, it's just interesting the way it's all kind of gone as far as his career is concerned. But I like that comp, Joe. I had not heard that. But that's a very good move. Shia LaBeouf, what he did with Honey Boy, Vigo's doing the following. That's a good call.
1: Cool. Well, I'll also just say this. I'm glad Lance... Harrison is getting some roles. I just know him as Bishop from Aliens and so I'm glad to see that he at least even though it seems overbearing that he's you know has a role that he can really chew on.
0: Absolutely. Here's some reviews. Rex Reed of The Observer, The Strength, Patience and Universal Need to Forgive and Bridge Generational Gaps. Mr. Mortensen is aiming for have a devastating effect um, uh, Matt Zoller cites RogerEbert.com. It's impressive work all around. Mortensen is a sure hand, mostly excellent judgment. And John Nugent of Empire, a bold, brave first effort behind the camera for Vigo Mortensen, elegantly distilling some painful truths for anyone who has ever had a complicated relationship with a parent. Good but not great reviews overall, 67% Rotten Tomatoes. The fan vote, 52%. I think most of you, if you watch it, you'd probably be more in line with the 52%. We'll get to some news in a second, but first, my man Ethan Hawk. He's one of my favorite actors. I met him at Sundance a couple years ago. He's just an engaging guy, charismatic guy. I love him. Every time I see him in interviews, he's always interesting and fascinating to me. What's notable is that if I said Ethan Hawk to you, you'd think, well... The movies that would come to mind are actually not my favorites, but Dead Poet Society, Reality Bites, Gattaca, Training Day. I think Training Day is pretty good, but the rest of those I, I, I'm not particularly enamored of. I love him because of First Reform, that great film he made with Paul Schrader, in which Schrader finally received his first nomination for Best Original Screenplay. Hawk should have been nominated, was robbed. He won Best Actor by the New York Film Critics and LA Film Critics that year. I love a film called Born to be Blue, great jazz film in which he played Chet Baker. Uh, I like a movie called The Phenom a lot, Ethan Hawke and Paul Giamatti, not many have seen it. But he's an eclectic guy. He's a four-time Academy Award nominee for Best Actor and for Best Screenplays. Of course, I did not mention what I also really enjoy, the Before Sunset Trilogy, which a lot of people love, especially if you love indie movies and such. The guy's also been Hamlet. I mean, it's unbelievable. Um, So he's obviously been all over the place. And I think Stephen Colbert made a great point to me. He goes, listen, I, I watched this last week, the interview. He goes, you know, you've done a graphic novel. You're an actor. You're a writer of screenplays. You've written books, including this new book, A Bright Ray of Darkness, his first since Ash Wednesday. He said, you're a musician, uh, you're a documentarian, you're a director, directing a movie called Blaze, which is what she was promoting at Sunday, that's a couple years ago. He goes, "Like well, what the hell? Like, what you? And <laughs> Ethan Hawke laughed, he goes, I get asked this question a lot, the best way I can describe it is that, and I think if you're at a university, you see the engineering building, you, know, right? you see the mathematics, if you see the arts, that's me, like everything about the arts I'm into. So anything with the arts... I'm going to do, whether it's music, whether it's writing, whether it's directing, whether it's, you know. So then Colbert said, now, are you a painter? Like, do you, do you, are you a sculptor? And Ethan Hawke said, like, no, I could, I could probably do a little bit of that stuff because I do watercolors with my kids. But I just find him to be a fascinating guy because he really puts himself into all of his work. And The Good Lord Bird, which I reviewed the first episode of Showtime, is another example of that. He got nominated, unsurprisingly, at the Golden Globes. And just like when you think, I can't get enough Ethan Hawke, you get more Ethan Hawke because you get this new book called The Bright Ray of Darkness, which, like I said, I read in four days. Here's the story. The blistering story of a young man making his Broadway debut in Henry IV just as his marriage implodes. An utterly transfixing book about art and love, fame and heartbreak from the acclaimed actor, writer, director. Hawks' first novel in nearly 20 years, a bracing meditation on fame and celebrity and the redemptive healing power of art. A portrait of the ravages of disappointment and divorce. A poignant consideration of the rights of fatherhood and manhood. A novel soaked in rage and sex. Longing and despair. A passionate love letter to the world of theater. Hawk's narrator is a young man in torment, disgusted with himself after the collapse of his marriage, still half hoping for a reconciliation that would allow him to forgive himself, and moves on as he clumsily and sometimes hilariously tries to manage the wreckage of his personal life with whiskey and sex. What saves him is theater, in particular the challenge of performing the role of Hotspur in a production of Henry IV under the leadership of a brilliant director, helmed by one of the most electrifying and narcissistic Falstaffs of all time. Searing and Raw, A Bright Ray of Darkness is a novel about shame and beauty and faith and the moral power of art. Is it just me or does it sound like Ethan Hawke's life, right? That was my first thought. I go, hang on a second. Really a talented actor, artistic, and all of a sudden taking heat for his marriage falling apart. Well, he met Uma Thurman on the set of Gattaca, a year later married, had a kid right away, two kids overall, six years later, marriage is over. Rumors were he cheated on her with a nanny. He denied that he cheated on her with a nanny, but he's now since married to the nanny. Ryan is her name. He has two more kids. So in reading the book, I was laughing, going, okay, I think Ethan Hawke has taken a blowtorch to his own life. The first few chapters in particular are hysterical. He is this well known actor who, whether he's getting into a cab and the Indian guy starts making fun of him, going, Oh, God, I saw the tabloids about you. Buddy, how could you cheat on your wife? She's unbelievable. Instead of Uma Thurman, world class actress, he makes the woman in the book a world class rock star, but still somebody who's very famous, very glamorous, and beloved by all. And there's one chapter in there which is, I just, God, this gotta be from this guy's life. I mean, write what you know, right? there's a chapter about how the woman is getting decked up and he's looking after the kids and she's living her life and he's resentful of her. And I kept wondering, how much of this is Ethan Hawke's life? How much of this was his marriage to Uma Thurman? So I give him credit for putting his own life in there. And at the same time, being very self-flagellating. I mean, his, his main character, it is hysterical how much this guy's getting beaten up. Like I said, by the other actors in the cast, how could you cheat on your wife? Oh my God, she's so perfect. How could you do that to her? Whether it's people in the street, even when he's meeting women, he's a good-looking guy, 32. One of the funniest chapters in the entire book, he meets this woman who's 21 years old. He keeps referring to her as Bridget Bardot because she's so pretty. And like he's losing his mind. And at the same time, I'm like, this is not going to go well. I'll read it to you. Uh, page 50. I immediately made eye contact with a dead ringer for a 21-year-old Bridget Bardot. The woman was a stone-cold fox. She was a walking key lime pie, if you love key lime pie. She was the type of woman that even heterosexual women would love to see naked. Her tits were huge, gravity-defying. She could drive cross-country for a month, not change her jeans, and her pussy would still smell like crushed roses. Her hair fell softly with each gentle toss of her head, moving like the mane of a unicorn. She walked over to me, and in a dopey Midwestern accent, told me that she had my picture on her locker back in the 12th grade, three whole years ago. That's nothing to be embarrassed about, I said, smug and cocksure later on they start flirting and uh the guy that he's with tells him that his wife is now making out with Valentino Coventino I asked Dean before he left who's Valentino Calvino he's an Italian fashion stud come on you know who he is isn't he gay I asked well if he is he's the you know what effing your wife Dean smiled his world-famous insouciant smile kissed me on the mouth with his beard scratching my face and walked away He then goes on to tell the woman about Bridget Bardot, (laughs) And has he ever seen Contempt? Bridget Bardot's early work is sensational. I mean, her performance in about three to five films will stand strong next to anything Robert De Niro or Gene Hackman has ever done. Your beauty doesn't exclude you from your greater role as a human being. Vanessa Redgrave, Elizabeth Taylor, Catherine Deneuve, you must watch these women work. Watch it compulsively, and you can have that. That's also funny because Ethan Hawke made a film with Catherine Deneuve, came out last year, so I know he's a huge Catherine Deneuve fan. He then starts going on this huge rant telling her like how pretty she is, and you can tell she has no idea what he's talking about. It's not hard for any two-bit famous actor to get into some girl's panties. I'm not saying yours specifically. I would never be that presumptuous, but you've got to trust me on this. Getting ass is not a struggle for the contemporary film actor, even one who is a bastard-adultering playboy, all right? So you can relax, and I know that I don't want anything from you except to see you across the room 17 years from now. I want to be able to say I was a part of those that were part of the solution. I'll be one of those who helped you on your way. Yes, she said. Do you want to get out of here, I asked. Yeah, but I think you should stop doing cocaine. I've never seen somebody do so much at one time, she said, with sincere concern. I looked at her completely deadpan. I had no idea I would even been doing it, but it seems I was cutting up lines for two of us and then doing them both all by myself. <laughs> like it's just unreal. This guy's a total train wreck. Of course, he takes her back. He's now, he's frolicking with her in the water. He was, I was feeling like Errol Flynn. The stars were bright. I could see Brooklyn. I could see Central Park. Uh, the girl brings along a friend. I could see two young mermaids with their heaving breasts bouncing playfully. I could hear their giggles and swarms. I thought about my children, their laughter. I knew everything with my kids would be okay. Soon the girls began serenading me on the steps of the pool. Their nipples wet, cold, and erect. Their naked legs clasped tight around their vaginas. Beads of heated water dripping from their hair. Their melodic fairy tale voices singing. But of course, you know this is not going to work. So later on, he takes the bugger back. She goes and she says to him, "Listen, um, the sorry, I I can't even read this. Even I'm I'm blushing. This would make a sailor blush. Uh, Then she says, I don't want you to think I'm a tease, but I really have only slept with two boys. I don't know if I'm ready to move this fast. Eventually she says, let's do it. Immediately I tried to insert my prick inside her. I thought this would do worlds for my self-esteem. This was important for me and the show, but I knew if I thought too much about it, I would lose my erection so I had to charge. Wait, 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 she said. One question I can't help it, but I have to ask, she said tenderly. Sure, I said, holding my breath thinking it would prevent my prick from descending. She sat up naked in bed. The sheet tussled around her elegantly. Then in the gentle morning light with her hair over her eyes she asked sincerely am i as pretty as your wife (laughs) guy can't win and safe to say yes he does not get it up as far as the play itself ethan hawk loves plays The aforementioned claire atkins her husband dan and my wife amon we all went saw ethan hawk in true west i mean he's great on the stage so all these elements of the theater I found really interesting because he talks about the life of a theater actor. One thing you never think about theater actors, they're terrified of losing their voices because it's such a long run and there's so much stress on their voice. So they're just got stretches in here. It's so funny. He's so self-destructive. He's smoking, eating ice cream sandwiches, but he's scared to go outside when it's cold because he doesn't want to lose his voice. He's conserving his voice even throughout the day. I was watching Stanley Tucci in an interview and he goes, oh, Broadway's the worst. Because people think it's so great. He goes, listen, you, you, you get up, at at ten o'clock because you didn't go to bed till one from the night before you don't get to tuck your kids into bed you don't see them in the morning when they go to school you put around for a couple hours do what you need to do you maybe get an exercise in by three o'clock you're thinking about the show you go to the show you rehearse lines you practice you do the show you're exhausted you go home nobody's awake you have a couple of drinks and you go to bed at one and you've got to sleep till ten because you got to get your sleep he said it's an awful life Stanley Tucci goes I would never like doing it he goes I like short runs he goes me and Tony Shalhoub would do four weeks on Broadway that was fine because I never liked the idea of like six months of doing this and this character. Ethan Hawke's character playing, you know, Hotspur, which, by the way, Henry IV is one of my favorite Shakespearean plays. I mean, the reason I love it, my English teacher, I'm still in touch with, Peter Peart, is the best. He loves Falstaff. And so much so that Jack McCallum, the great NBA writer, would recall Shaquille O'Neal as being a modern-day Falstaff, which was hilarious to me, because Falstaff is just this big, gregarious, voluble guy, prone to drinking and laughter, and the Falstaff in the character is just like you'd expect if you've read Henry IV. But I thought... You know, overall, I'm going to give it three-way beliefs. The reason why is I thought it would be funnier. Like, those early passages I read was what I really enjoyed. The second half of the novel gets a little bit deeper, a little more melancholic. I didn't think it was totally working. There's a subplot about the main character and his father, which I thought was touching but felt a little forced to me, a little bit contrived. You know, as far as celebrities writing books, I I, I preferred uh, Jim Carrey's book, which I thought was more absurdist and more satirical. But this is definitely uh, has a lot of heart, and it is funny. And like I said, it's definitely self-flagellating. I think Ethan Hawke is definitely putting himself through the grinder, and it's definitely a worthy book of reading, especially for its insights in the theater and just how an actor prepares and how their personal life can just completely unravel. Ron Charles of the Washington Post explores the demands of acting and the delusions of manhood with tremendous verve and insight, the work of an author who knows everything Every aspect of the profession from the inside. Hawk is a genius at conjuring the hush of the auditorium, the thrill of live actors, the magical sense of performance moving through time. He's written a witty, wise, and heartfelt novel, a deeply hopeful story. Bravo. And Patty Smith, Ethan Hawke is a true writer, and his duality as an artist is skillfully reflected in a bright ray of darkness. Hawke circles, descends, and crawls into his character's skin. Grimy shadows pass over the footlights into the bowels of the theater, where a struggling actor, perhaps mirroring the writer, seeks the vine of redemption and claws his way into becoming. Bright Ray is a riveting work.
1: Joe? And I'm noticing a thing that it kind of seems like another... Uh, piece kind of like what Shia LaBeouf did for Honey Boy Ethan Hawke's kind of doing with a, a bright ray of darkness would you agree with that?
0: Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I looked it up. He, he swears he did not cheat on uh, Uma Thurman with a nanny, but <laughs> this character is definitely a philanderer and gets taken to the woodshed about it. So I, I think you're right. I think all these guys are are using their art to kind of explore different aspects of themselves, playing with their persona. I think Ethan Hawke knows what we think of him. Maybe people think he's pretentious. He's been an actor for like, you know, 30 or think He's been an actor for like 40 years. So he knows what people say about him, and, and he's able to, like I said, have a real sense of humor about it. So, yeah. Just like Honey Boy, just like Falling, we've got Ethan Hawke in A Bright Ray of Darkness. I recommend it.
1: Oh, right, I can't wait to read it then. And, and do you, I mean, I know you read a few excerpts, but overall, when reading the book, do you get a sense, like, can you hear his voice? Does his prose kind of reflect his acting or his cadence and speech? I mean, do you get Ethan Hawke? Do you feel like you're reading him when you read it?
0: Yeah, especially the main actor, but especially when he's talking about acting, because again, I think if you like Ethan Hawke as I do, I think he's smart and gifted. If you don't like him, you think he's a bore and pretentious. So I think at times the character comes across like that, which I thought was funny. If I have another criticism of the book, it's very dialogue heavy. I'm glad you mentioned the prose. I wish he'd written more prose. I mean, it's just a lot of dialogue from different characters. And it's well written and it's funny, but I, I like a good balance and I'm reading fiction. I like to have prose and dialogue. I think he's a better writer when it comes to prose than he shows. It's just a very dialogue-heavy novel. But the good news is that's why I was able to read it so quickly. When it's dialogue, you just kind of fly through it. So it definitely has a bit of his voice. All right, coming up after the break, entertainment news The Mount Rushmore of Polyglot Actors next. Let's fly through some entertainment news. Gina Carano is getting crushed. Mandalorian star fired after a social media controversy. She's not going to be returning to the Mandalorian or the Star Wars galaxy after sharing a post on social media implying that being a Republican today is like being Jewish during the Holocaust. This is going to be one of the stupidest quotes we've ever seen. And this is not the first time Carano has been the focus of social media ire for political comments last november she issued contentious tweets one in which she mocked mask wearing amid the novel coronavirus pandemic and another in which she falsely suggested voter fraud during the 2020 presidential election so she's a real piece of work isn't she last wednesday the hashtag fire gina Carano was trending following an instagram post uh that was obviously met very poorly former miss marks artist so she's out uh, well, it's, it's a shame because obviously Disney Plus they're planning to unveil her as a star of her own Disney Plus series. John Favre's by like all right, got to give you the heave ho. See ya, Gina. Also, if you're a Stanley Kubrick fan, the unmade Stanley Kubrick movie *Lunatic at Large* getting the feature film treatment. Producers Bruce Hendricks and Galen Walker have optioned the rights to his project. They plan to adapt it. Uh, at one point, it was supposed to get rolling back in 2010. *Lunatic at Large* was in the news on an adaptation starring Sam Rockwell and Charlotte Johansson. But many filmmakers have tried failed to mount a production of Kubrick's other unmade stories, including Cary Fukunaga, who was attached at one point to adapt Napoleon into a miniseries for HBO. Plot details wraps, but producers describe it as a film noir thriller in keeping with other collaborations between Kubrick and his frequent collaborator, screenwriter Jim Thompson. Production is slated to begin in fall of 2021. If you love Parasite as much as me, Oscar-winning director and writer Bong Joon-ho has revealed the two follow-up films to Parasite are on track for completion. He confirmed that one of of the two scripts is already finished, said Bong uh, in a recent conversation with Ryan Johnson on the Director's Cut podcast. It feels like I'm splitting my brain in half left and right writing these two scripts, but I finished one last week. Though not much detail has been revealed regarding the plot of the films, Bong has said that one of the scripts is written in Korean, the other in English. Bong has not yet divulged which of the scripts he has completed. He also clarified the Korean film is located in Seoul, has unique elements of horror and action. He also stated it's difficult to define the genre of my films. The English Project is a drama film based on a true event that happened in 2016. Of course, I won't know until I finish the script, but it has to be set half in the UK and half in the US. Look forward to that. Also, Bong developing a Parasite HBO TV series of the Adam McKay series is set to utilize some of the discarded ideas from the film's original script. Currently, no further information regarding the release dates for these films. Judd Apatow, who I love, despite that I did not like that Pete Davidson movie, King of Staten Island. Making the jump to Netflix, Judd Apatow, quite a cast for his next comedy, The Bubble. He's got Maria Bakalova, first breakout role since Borat 2. Please, can she win an Oscar? You've also got Iris Apatow, you know, nepotism goes a long way. Fred Armerson, David Duchovny, who I love. I want to go pick up his new book. He's got a new new book out. He's also quite the novelist. Keegan-Michael Key. Leslie Mann. Pedro Pascal. Uh, quite the cast here. Apatow will direct and produce the pilot. Co-write the script with Pam Brady. And long time producer Bray Mendel will serve as executive producer. The film follows a group of actors and actresses stuck inside a pandemic bubble at a hotel attempting to complete a film. The pick couldn't be timelier as more and more productions ramping back up even as COVID-19 remains in full effect. Once Netflix boarded the project, it was quickly fast-tracked to the plan to start shooting at the top of 2021 the plan always has been to deliver in a cast that rivals previous A-list ensembles like The Disaster Artist and Knives Out, and Apatow is certainly delivered there. Listen, Keegan-Michael Key, Maria Bakalova, Pedro Pascal, you're definitely getting some names in there. I mean, Leslie Mann, his wife, David Duchovny, is also going to be in it. And um, that reminds me, by the way, Apatow was great on uh, <clears throat> the podcast that Jason Bateman does with Will Arnett, and uh, it's really funny. I'm trying to find the name right now. But anyways, Apatow was telling the story about... <laughs> The Larry Sanders Show, which is my favorite television show of all time, and he just the stories he was telling about Jeffrey Tambor and Rip Torn. I mean, if you're a Larry Sanders fan, you've got to listen to it. It's so funny and so well done. So Smartless—that's the name of the podcast. Smartless. Um, it's with Sean Hayes, Will Arnett, Jason Bateman. Check out the episode involving Judd Apatow. If you're a fan of Apatow, and especially if you love the Larry Sanders Show, he has a couple of stories which are absolutely hysterical. One more bit of news here: Joe Pesci. Lavalette, New Jersey mansion, already been on the market for a couple of years. Photos from its Zillow listing. That's right. At first glance, the home pretty much resembles how one would imagine a $6.5 million New Jersey abode. All white, everything spiral, staircase, gaudy accent furniture. It only takes a few houses to realize this isn't just Joe Pesci's house. It's a shrine to all things Pesci. Perhaps one room decorated with your acting careers, awards, and memorabilia. But this is Joe Pesci. Eight-bed, eight bath, 7200 7,200-square-foot Joe Pesci shrine, complete with gone fishing posters, framed black and white, Raging Bull press photos, what appears to be a Pesci meme blown up to wall art size. Also an antique barber's chair in there because, of course, Joe Pesci is the kind of guy who wants to fancy in-house hair and shave appointments. Uh, nearly $7 million price tag. Unbelievable. you got to get furniture as well. you got a lethal weapon 3 pinball machine. Joe, your thoughts on the Joe Pesci
1: mansion? I mean that you—you you just said it right there. Because when I look at this picture of his living room, the first thing that popped into my head was a bright blue lethal weapon pinball machine needed to go into the corner also the uh standalone what is it merry-go-round horse in the middle of the sunroom do you see that picture yeah i do i'm looking at it right now this is unbelievable yeah i mean i would do the same thing too if i had a long and uh a successful career in hollywood i would have all my posters up i would have really gaudy furniture this is everything i wanted and more from joe pesci's new jersey home (laughs)
0: we got to start a GoFundMe here uh, as far as getting some money together for this Joe Pesci Uh Your thoughts, Joe, any of those other topics, Judd Apatow comedy, Gina Carano gone, Bong Joon-ho updates in the Kubrick movie?
1: I am really happy to see Maria Bakalova starting to get more uh, roles, and I'm glad that she's being cast and stuff and that people are recognizing just how good she was in the movie, and I hope it continues well into 2021.
0: Uh, well said, man. Right, listen, she's going to, hopefully, fingers crossed, get nominated for Best Supporting Actress. I mean, if it's her and Young Ho Jung from Minari, God, if either of those win, I would just be ecstatic. So you're right. Maria Bakalova, you're now working with Judd Apatow. You are officially big time. And quickly, let's do a little Sundance Film Festival, 14,000 films. Uh, here's the ones that were big. The big one they you have to learn about is called CODA, all right, CODA. Grand Jury Prize, in addition to Best Director and the Audience Award, a Sundance rarity. Family drama, coming-of-age tale combines familiar beats about finding yourself, breaking free of your family, and making plenty of mistakes along the way. Yet that seeming familiarity is one of its greatest assets because it's about one character who can hear and the rest of the family is deaf. All of Heater's deaf characters played by deaf actors. The film is subtitled. That still contains massive appeal for everybody. Marley Matlin, the most famous deaf actor of all time, won an Academy Award, Children of a Lesser God, back in 1986. She's in the movie. They say the movie played like an online version, like Gangbusters. $25 million Apple put up for it. That is a record-breaking number. So look forward to CODA, which will be on Apple. It's supposed to be a wonderful film. C.N. Heater is the director of her second feature film. Other movies that I can't wait to see, got a lot of buzz here uh, coming out of Sundance. Uh, It's a film called uh, Mass, which stars Jason Isaacs. It's about two families, two groups of parents coming together after a school shooting. Um, One set of parents are parents of the child who was slain. One set of parents are the the child who actually committed the shooting. So it sounds incredibly intense. I really look forward to seeing it. I heard Jason Isaacs is unbelievable in it. So I look forward to that movie as well. Uh, on the Count of Three is interesting. Gerard Carmichael, directorial debut. I adore comedy. Longtime friends, Val and Kevin, pointing handguns at each other, part of a suicide pact. That's what it's called in the Count of Three. They have a suggestion. Let's postpone our plan for 24 hours, spend the last day of Earth enjoying some borrowed time together, and then we're going to kill ourselves. Apparently, it's funny and interesting. Uh, it could be a little bit glib, but it actually comes out rather well. Passing is a movie. I'm surprised this did not get bought yet. Um, I thought this was going to be a big contender. Rebecca Hall, who herself is a biracial. um, This story is about 1920s set Harlem. It's inspired by author Nella Larson's Life. One character, uh, sorry, both characters are biracial. One passes as black, one passes as white. They're both childhood friends. Actresses played by Ruth Nega and Tessa Thompson. Apparently, it's supposed to be an excellent movie. I mean, the crux of the obsession is that both of them are light-skinned enough to pass as white women, and one of them has chosen exactly to do that. As this one review from IndieWire says, the concept might sound salacious, but in Hall's hands, it's as delicate and considered as the book on which it was based. And this is a book, like I said, set in 1920s Harlem, looking forward to passing from actress Rebecca Hall directing, starring Ruth Naga and Tessa Thompson. Documentary, Rita Rita Moreno, just a girl who decided to go for it. Love Rita Moreno. Are you kidding? Uh, West Side Story, obviously, uh, the first Latina to ever win an Oscar. Loved her in Oz which I'm sure the documentary talks about. So I look forward to seeing Rita Moreno as well, that documentary. Um, also, Summer of Soul, when the revolution could not be televised. This is from Amir Quest Love Thompson, of course. You know, Love the Roots. It's about a great, great concert. Apparently, Summer of Soul, never-before-seen footage. Stevie Wonder, Nina Simone, Sly and the Family Stone, B.B. King, The Staple Singers, Fifth Dimension, Harlem Cultural Festival. That I sure is going to do well. Summer of Soul. Uh, lots of great music in that one as well. So that's your Sunday review, some films to look forward to uh, in the days and weeks ahead. Mount Rushmore. All right. I love this Mount Rushmore idea here from Joe. And this is about polyglots, people that speak more than one language. So, We've got lots of contenders here. I mean, listen, we're going to have to get our boy in here. Obviously, Vigo Mortensen, who, as I mentioned off the top, talk about a guy who's got lots of different talents. I mean, <clears throat> I didn't know he could speak this many languages, but clearly a guy who can do lots in different modes. It's what I always find interesting with Vigo Morris. Like I said, you think he's like, you know, the Spanish actor because he speaks Spanish, but no. English, Danish, Spanish, French, conversation in Catalan, and Swedish and Norwegian. Vigo is in the Mount Rushmore polyglot and multilingual actors. Also, I've got to include Audrey Hepburn. Okay, breakfast at Tiffany's. English, Dutch, Spanish, French, and Italian. There's two actors in there for sure. I've got to put in A bombshell. Monica Bellucci. I mean, one of the most gorgeous women who's ever walked the earth. English, Italian, Spanish, and French. That means I go with one of Martin Scorsese's favorite actors. Lastly, Leonardo DiCaprio. English, German, and some Italian. Who knew Leo could speak German and some Italian? So that's my list. Viggo Mortensen, Audrey Hepburn, Monica Bellucci, Leonardo DiCaprio. Missing the cut. Jodie Foster, Edward Norton, Christoph Waltz, Bradley Cooper. Joe, what do you got?
1: all right i love your list and i agree with you beagle mortensen needs to be on the list he speaks so many languages and one more if you include elfish and lord of the rings i don't know he learned it for that role from my understanding (laughs) So more power to him good uh i'm also gonna go with i'll go with ed norton i'll go if you're gonna leave ed norton off i'll go with him um just because Japanese is the curveball there. I, f- I found out that he studied, he went to J- Japan for a semester in college and that's how he learned it and he still speaks pretty well today. Um, I'll also throw in Christoph Waltz just because, you know, movie-like and Glorious Bastards where he's speaking those three languages in that film fluently. He's incredible. I'll throw him on. And so that leaves one more. I will throw on, I'll do Jodie Foster. I'm going to throw Jodie Foster on. So incredibly smart. English, French, conversational Spanish, German, and Italian. I don't know how these people do it. It's incredible. And so my four are Viggo Mortensen, Ed Norton, Christoph Waltz, and Jodie Foster.
0: I love it. Good less. Uh, Christoph Walls, I did think about because again, when you think about his best performances, think about Inglorious Bastards. The fact he's so um, his dexterity with so many different languages, right? He's just the way he just switches from German to English to Italian. I mean, it's just it's amazing to see. He definitely is a very, very talented actor. All right, that's Cinephile for this time around. Like I said, hopefully a uh, good guests coming up. Louis Anderson planning for next week. The week after that, Jermaine Fowler lots of coming to America conversation. Look forward to that. Look forward to you being a part of the Cinephile ride. Until then, I'll see you at the movies.